You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Welcome to Sojourn. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy and privilege to be able to open God's Word with you uh, again this morning. Um, Some of you who've been around for a while may know this, uh, and for some of you who haven't, you don't. So let me tell you what's what's going on this morning. Uh, This morning is... Uh, my final sermon, uh, not ever, um, but my final sermon in the role that I currently hold as the pastor of preaching and vision for uh, this local congregation, Sojourn Montrose. And so um, in light of that, in light of that reality, I, I plan this morning to, to speak uh, a little bit differently maybe than, uh, than I normally would. Uh, we're, we're pretty used here to uh, opening God's Word to a particular scripture and uh, and just sort of walking through it uh, slowly, methodically, um, and, and hopefully, helpfully. Um, but this morning will feel hopefully a, a bit more like a family conversation uh, as, as I address you guys as someone who um, loves you deeply, um, who's grateful for uh, the ways that I've been able to serve this congregation over the last five years in this particular role, and who is also excited um, about the things that are coming in 2019, not only for me personally, but for us in particular as a congregation that I will still belong to uh, simply in a different capacity in the year moving forward. And so, um, uh, like I said, it might, might feel a little bit more like a, a family conversation this morning, and that's, that's on purpose, that's intentional um, this morning. And so if you will uh, allow me a brief moment of prayer uh, before we jump into the sermon this morning, uh, I'd be grateful. Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to be gathered together uh, as, as a family. Um, Lord, thank you um, for what you have done uh, throughout human history, Lord, as we see uh, you acting uh, consistently with grace and mercy and kindness and justice and goodness and gentleness, uh, Lord, towards your people. We thank you, God, this morning that we're recipients of all of those things through your son, Jesus, uh, and Lord, that um, we are now called in kind to extend those same things to others in hopes, Father, that your glory might be multiplied throughout all of the earth, Lord, that your glory might cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And Lord, we pray that we would play our part faithfully, however large or small it may be, in the years to come. And many may they be for your name's sake. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Um, Sojourn Montrose and, and, and Sojourn Houston, the family of churches that we belong to throughout the city, made up of four, soon to be five congregations throughout um, urban Houston, a- exist for a singular purpose. We exist um, to join the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption. That's our, our mission statement. And it's, a, it's a, a fairly broad one, isn't it? I mean, it's, there's nothing really uh, unique about it. It's nothing that's... Uh, uh, that's different or novel. Um, and that was on purpose. We exist to join the Father, Son, and Spirit in the work of redemption. And so what, what happened eight years ago, what, what began eight years ago in a living room in the Heights was nothing novel or new. And what began in a living room five years ago in Montrose, again, was nothing new, nothing unique, nothing novel. Both of those things in the beginning of Sojourn Houston, which would lead to this 
uh, family of churches being born or, or in the birth of Sojourn Montrose as a part of that family. Nothing in what took place is new or different from what God has been about doing since the beginning of time. Everything that we're a part of, everything that you and I are a part of as a part of this local congregation is a continuation of God's work throughout human history. You see, we've said this multiple times throughout um, our, our time together uh, as a church these last five years. God's intent from the beginning of time, from the beginning of creation, was to have for himself a people. And it was, intent, it was his intent that in having that people, that people would be a people to whom he reveals himself and a people through whom he would then reveal himself to the world through whom His glory would be put on display for all of creation to witness and behold and wonder at. And so if that's the case, if that's what we see happening on the pages of Scripture, if that's what we see being borne out even now among us, then that is also, brothers and sisters, what we are a part of. A part of seeing God's intent fulfilled. God's intent to have a people to Himself to whom He reveals Himself and through whom He reveals Himself to the world. We firmly believe that that is what we are a continuation of. Now if we trace the history of God's work in the world, what we'll find is that God works towards the ends of His glory covering the earth by the means of a plurality, a multiplicity of people, a greater whole. There have certainly been singular leaders that stick out in our minds maybe as we read God's Word. We can think of names maybe even that pop up, men and women alike who have played significant roles in the development of this history. And I think that our temptation as individuals who inhabit a uniquely, I would say radically individualistic society, our temptation is to see ourselves in those singular characters rather than to zoom out and take in what God is doing on a 30,000 foot level to see the full story for what it is. Let me show you what I mean. If I were to ask you who created the world this morning, you'd probably say God did, assuming you're a Christian. right? And that answer wouldn't be wrong. You guess God created the world. God created the world and everything in it is what Genesis tells us. And yet, if we look more closely, we know that there is a plurality at work in the creation of the world. There's this really funny phrase in Genesis chapter 1 where, where God actually he, he speaks, it's his first quotation marks in the, in the word, and he says, let us, let us make man in our image. And this is the first instance that we come into the contact with this idea of God being one God, but in three persons, that he is a plurality, that there are three persons within this singular God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And that all three of them in that moment are active in the act of creation. So it's not just God the Father 
putting everything together and the Son and the Spirit are sort of sitting back having a Mai Tai, watching this all play itself out, right? But that all three persons of this one God, all three persons of the Trinity, and we won't get into how all that works um, because I don't know that I could explain it, um, but that all three of them are active in the act of creation. Let us make man in our own image. In that same moment of creation, we see this God acknowledge that singularity or that individuality isn't sufficient for the display of his glory, right? What does this God do? He creates man, he creates man in his own image, and then what does he say? He looks at everything that he's created, man the crowning jewel of his creation, and he says everything is good except what? One thing. It's not good that the man should be alone. It's not good that the man should be alone. And so he, he remedies that problem. He creates woman. He creates Eve out of Adam. And then God says to Adam and to Eve, what does he say to them? He doesn't say, enjoy your life together, um, live it out to the end of its days in your isolated, joyous little cocoon of a family. Right? What does he say? He says, be fruitful and multiply and what? Fill the earth. What he's essentially saying is, fill the earth with my image, right? You, you reflect me. You bear my image. Go out, multiply, fill the earth such that my image in you, my glory, fills the earth. That's what God intended from the beginning, to have a people to himself to whom he reveals himself and then through whom he reveals himself to the whole world. And we see this theme bear itself out throughout the rest of Scripture, and we, we really don't have time to jump into all the different instances of this, but let me just give us a couple, right? There's uh, a moment uh, in Exodus 18 where Moses, this great famous leader, right? Even if you haven't uh, read the Bible, you've probably heard the name Moses before. You might have some context of his story, but he's, he's a leader for the people of Israel in a very crucial time in their history. They've been led out of slavery in Egypt, and they're now being led into uh, a season of wandering, essentially. And Moses is this singular leader, and in Exodus 18, we see his leadership capacity essentially completely taxed. He's, he's, he's totally burnt out. He's tired, he's been, he serves the people sun up to sundown every single day, and he's wiped out. And in Exodus chapter 18, his father-in-law comes to him and says, you know what you're doing isn't good. And Moses goes, well, I, like, well, I'm, just, I'm, I'm doing the best that I can, right? Everybody loves an overbearing father-in-law. Um, and yet what Moses' father-in-law tells him is good and right and true, and he says that he should appoint leaders, that he should share the burden, that there needs to be a plurality of leadership, there needs to be a plurality of involvement, of ownership, of all of these things for the sake of the flourishing of God's people. And so God's glory is not most clearly or best displayed when Moses comes down and is the singular leader, the singular connection point to God, to His ways, to His purposes for His people. It's not good. 
Moses, being the wise man that he is, takes his father-in-law's advice. And we see, of course, this benefit the people greatly at the end of chapter 18 and moving on. Again, we see this theme bear itself out in the very life of Jesus, do we not? Where Jesus, who as the greatest leader in this world, the one person who without question um, and with every possible qualification could have said, I should be the singular leader, takes 12 for himself. And even beyond that, in Luke chapter 10, sends out 72 of his disciples to go and do the things that he has taught, trained, equipped them to do, right? Luke 10, 1 and 2, he sends them out. He says this, what does he say? He says, and this is, again, maybe you're not familiar with the Bible completely, but you've probably heard this phrase before. He says that the, the harvest is plentiful. He says, look, there's plenty of work to be done out there. There's a lot, there's, the harvest is plentiful, but what does he say? But the laborers, those who work the harvest, are few. And he says, so pray for more laborers. Pray for more people to put their hands to the plow. Pray for a plurality of peoples to join with you in this endeavor. This is what he's saying to the 72 before he sends them out. We see it again in the book of Acts as the early church is forming, right? We see the disciples at the time, the apostles of the church, doing what? Equipping the church for the work of ministry. Calling together a plurality of people, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. And they are sent throughout that region of the Middle East. God, again, working through a plurality. God working through a multiplicity of peoples in a multiplicity of places for His glory. We see this in all of Paul's writing too, right? Paul's the guy who writes the majority of the New Testament, right? So again, this guy's got some claim to fame, if you will. He has some leadership clout that if he wanted to call that down, if he wanted to cash that check, proverbially, he could, but he doesn't. In fact, he spends the majority of his letters talking about how he is only one of many who are capable, able to lead, to follow, including whole congregations. In fact, most of his writing is aimed at developing and equipping the whole congregation, not just one singular person, but the whole congregation for the work of the kingdom. Paul knows as he studies the scripture that the glory of God will be most clearly revealed as congregations, not singular leaders, but as congregations go about the work of making God, making the Son, making the Spirit known in the world. And so again, what we clearly see traced throughout all of Scripture, God's intent always has been to have a people for Himself to whom He reveals Himself and through whom He reveals Himself to the world. Now, why does this matter? Why, like, why are we talking about this right now? Why is this where I would want to leave you? Well, <clears throat> 
One of my favorite things about Sojourn, um, if I can sort of brag on us for a minute without, without making this about uh, a competition. One of the things I love about Sojourn is that there's no one, there's no one person that you can point to and say, that person is the standout leader. Without that person's particular leadership skills, without that person's particular ability to communicate, without that person's significant gifting in whatever area, without that person's ability to attract people, right, Sojourn doesn't get where it's at. There's no person like that that we can point to. Like there's all, there are people who are uniquely gifted at Sojourn. We have wonderful leadership, but it's, it's a leadership team. Again, we've all got significant, I think, gifts, but we've also all got significant weaknesses, some of which have been clearly seen, mine in particular. Just being honest. That reality, one, I'm obviously making the case that it's a gift of the Lord. I'm not saying we pursued that intentionally. I just think this is how God works in the world, and clearly God is at work among us. Praise God for that. But this is countercultural. Right? Our, our, our culture tends to elevate the singular leader, and it's always looking to consolidate power underneath that singular leader. And what we see, again, throughout the history of the Bible as a whole, but also very specifically and uniquely in the history of the church since Acts chapter 1, is the complete opposite of that. We see a democratization of power. We see leadership most clearly revealed as it gives away the skills or the things that might make it distinct or unique, right? As Paul gives away leadership to the apostles as, or to the other disciples, and as those leaders in their churches give away power to the men and women in their congregation, as the men and women come together and they gather together and they prophesy to one another and they pray over one another, and as the gifts are leveraged among them together, And so in a culture that elevates the singular leader and is always looking to consolidate power, Sojourn has thrived under a plurality of leaders looking to give power away, looking to give responsibility away, looking to give those things away. And I, again, I, I, I don't think it's an accident because I think this is a consistent theme of the way God works through His people throughout the Scriptures. And so listen, there's days when I look at what our church has been through over the last five years and I go, well, was God with us there? Was He with us there? Or Even right now, honestly, let's be honest about our situation. We're, we're sending out almost 20% of our people this year to different church plants. Which like if you're, you know, if you're a church of, well, for any church, that's a significant chunk. But when you're a smaller church like we are, that's, I mean, that's a significant chunk of people. That's a significant chunk of dollars that are going out the door this year. And so the temptation, again, if we're looking at sort of the, the graph, so I guess if we're looking at it this way, right, we want to see things going that way, up and to the right, all the time, right? And if it's not up and to the right, there's a problem. We want to at least, and if it's like this, it's, like, it's okay, but we need to get back to up and to the right. 
Well, our, our graph right now did this. It did. And I think there's some of us that, again, in light of that reality, might look at that and go, like, is, God, is God really with us? Or has his presence departed from us? Is he no longer working through us? Is he no longer doing those things? And the, brothers and sisters, the clear answer, again, if we trace the themes of Scripture, is absolutely not. He's only doing what he's always done, which is to build a people and then send more people out, again, so that there might be a plurality, so that there wouldn't just be a church in the Heights, so that there wouldn't just be a church in Montrose, so that there wouldn't just be a church, but that there would be one in the East End, and that there would be one in the Fifth Ward, and that there would be one in whatever other nook and cranny of Houston that has yet to have the glory of God revealed to it through God's people. And so this is what makes me so excited about our future going forward. Um, this year, really for the last six months or so, but certainly moving into 2019, we are taking the most meaningful steps towards plurality that we have ever taken as a local congregation. The most meaningful steps towards the plurality that we have ever taken as a local congregation. We ordained our first non-staff elder in October in Peyton Simpson. We've ordained more deacons in this year than we ever have in any other previous year. And that's in a year where our membership declined. That means that more and more of our people, a greater percentage of our people, are serving the church in ways that deserve to be recognized as deacons and deaconesses. I'm stepping aside from my current role in the belief that this church will be better led, better equipped by the gifts of the two men that will divide the responsibilities of my current role. Further, one of our main focuses this year will be on equipping our whole church for the work of ministry. Listen, ministry isn't something that a select few do while the rest of us watch, contrary maybe to popular belief. And that's why I ultimately want to land where we read from this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to read through it once and just point out some things that I think are important for us, and then I want to read it again as a prayer or an exhortation over us. I want the Word to lead us into the new year together. So let's read it quickly here. It says this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. And when he's talking about that there, just to be clear, he's not calling them infants. He's not saying you're immature. What he's saying is there is some nutrition that you never graduate from. Now, what, what we didn't read and what you probably were not aware of, in chapter 1, Peter is saying that that's the word of God. Right at the, end of chapter, at the end of chapter 1, he says that they have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. So Peter is saying to God's people, he's saying, hold on to the Word. Continue to feed on the Word. Why? That by it you may grow up into salvation. Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and that stone is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so, brothers and sisters, here's the thing. If we want to be that people, if we want to be that people for God's own possession, that people that God reveals himself to and that God reveals himself through, we must be a plurality of people who are dependent on the word of God. That's the case that Peter's making. We have to be dependent on the word of God. That is our pure spiritual milk. That is the thing that we must continually long for if we want to grow up into salvation. If we want to mature beyond our years, look, we know this, right? We're a young church with young leaders who are going to make mistakes and who desperately need God to mature us beyond our years, who desperately need God to make us something more than what the accumulation of time could produce. And if we want to see that happen, we have to be committed to God's Word Peter makes the case that God's Word can do one of two things for us. It can be that cornerstone, that sure foundation, that thing that we can rest upon, knowing that it's going to hold the whole rest of our structure of life together. We can do that, and it can be that for us. Or, as we disregard it, it can be the the stone that we stumble over, the stone that continues to trip us up, the stone that continues to try to warn us and reveal to us that we're out of step, that we're walking in the wrong direction. That's what he says at the end of verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake. If we want to be that people to whom God reveals himself, we need God's word. That's how he reveals himself to us. If we want to be that people through whom God reveals himself to the world, well, it's the same thing. We need to be dependent on this word. But we not only need to be dependent on the word, we also need to proclaim that word, and this is what it says in verse 9, you, and this is where Texan is so helpful, because what, what Peter's saying here is not you, marshal, or you, church leader, he's saying y'all, right? But y'all, y'all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so it is not only that we are dependent upon the word for our own upbuilding so that we might grow up into salvation, but it's also through his word that we proclaim his excellencies, that we proclaim that he is who he says he is, that he's done what he said he's done, and that he will do what he has promised he will do, namely... Make the entire earth and all of creation his kingdom, over which he will rule in peace and glory and righteousness and justice. And we are invited into that kingdom. 
through the person and work of Jesus. The cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. So if we want to be that people to whom God reveals himself, we have to be dependent on the word. If we want to be that people through whom God reveals himself to the world, we have to proclaim that self-same word. But not only that, verse 11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your what? Good deeds. And glorify God on the day of visitation. So we have to be, brothers and sisters, a people, a plurality that is dependent on the word, that proclaims the word, but that also lives out the word, that acts out the word, right? right? It's not just about knowing the right things to say. It's not just knowing about what the word says, but it's actually going out and doing it. That's what the, the, the book of James is all about, right? Be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. In part, one of the ways that we proclaim God's word is through the way we actually live our lives, the day-to-day actions that we engage in. So, brothers and sisters, let me just be very clear. And I think this, is, this was a little bit mind-blowing for me as I was preparing for this sermon, but I briefly referenced a portion of text from, from Luke chapter 10 earlier, and it's a text where Jesus, again, is preparing to send out 72 disciples uh, to be about his work, to be about the, the work of ministry. And I want to read the exact words um, that Jesus uses uh, in, that, in that moment because it's, it's significant. And this, this is what he says in verse, verse, I'll start in verse 1. It says this, after, the Lord, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others, sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go, verse 2, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And here's the thing, we can know, like, you know, I'm guessing that these 72 honored that that command of Jesus, right? That That they earnestly prayed for that. And it is certainly true, and I think we find even evidence of it historically in in the book of Acts, the continuation of Luke's writing beyond the gospel, the story about Jesus' life. In the book of Acts, that, that the people are earnestly devoted to praying, and they're earnestly devoted in particular to praying, right, that the laborers would be many. And so here's what's wild to think about that. If you are a Christian in the room this morning, as a member of this church or whatever local congregation you belong to, you are the answer to their prayers. Like when Jesus says this, when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few, you are part of the answer. You are part of God's answer to that prayer. You are one of those laborers. There's two things that that should do for us. One, it should give us boundless confidence. Boundless confidence knowing that this, that us being in this room, that this whole thing happening, that the, the word of God being proclaimed lived out among us, that those things 
are a, are a gift of God among us and ultimately a continuation of everything that He's always been doing. That should give us boundless confidence, knowing that, again, there's no one person, there's no singularly gifted person here that we can attribute any of this to. And that's not just true of Sojourn Montrose, but that's true of just the church and the world. Like, it makes no sense that 72 people who eventually become zero when Jesus is crucified, because everyone's like, no, I'm, I'm out, <laughs> Right? That that all of a sudden then, after Jesus' resurrection, blows up into this worldwide faith, faith that now billions are a part of. And that like what he did with those faithful few in those early days, he's continuing now through even what may feel like a faithful few here. And that should give us boundless confidence in that wonderful reality, the story of the Lord, that God's glory is going forth in the world, but it should also give us a tremendous sense of responsibility. It should give us a tremendous sense of ownership. It should give us a tremendous, I hope, insight into much now of what we read in Paul's letters about there being one body comprised of many gifts and that the, the body only functions insofar as all of those gifts are leveraged, insofar as all of those gifts are directed at the purpose of making God's glory known in the world. And so brothers and sisters, look, my hope and my prayer as we move into 2019 is that we would move into it with that sense of boundless confidence that God is faithful to His promises, that He's going to do what He said He's going to do, namely make a people for Himself of every tongue, tribe, and nation in all of the, the earth, and also with a sense of incredible responsibility for our role in that. And that we would do whatever it takes, that if it's moving seats on the bus, right, if it's taking a step back from one role to engage in another role, if it's exercising a new gift here, if it's asking the Lord to give you a certain gift that might serve the church well, that we would do those things, that we would devote ourselves to prayer, that, that, we, that we would earnestly, with Jesus and with the 72 disciples, earnestly ask the Lord that the laborers would no longer be few. In Montrose, in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world. And that whatever our part to play in that is, we would play it with verve, excitement, confidence, and responsibility. Let me read this over us one more time. As an exhortation from the Lord to us, His people, and then we'll be done. Sojourn, Montrose. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For it stands in Scripture, God is laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling 
rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey as they were destined to do. But you all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you all may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you all out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you all were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you all had not received mercy, but now you all have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning again, for the opportunity to be gathered together as your people, a people for your possession. We belong to you. And Lord, in a glorious, unbelievable sense, you belong to us in Christ. And so, Father, I I pray ultimately that you'd continue to forge and fashion this church into a people to whom you reveal yourself and a people through whom you reveal yourself to the world. May we go into this next year with boundless confidence that you are a faithful God who keeps his promises and with an incredible sense of responsibility for the role that you have called us to play in this glorious, wonderful history that you are writing out. Father, we will not be put to shame because we are truly on the right side of history. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.